Welcome back, everybody, to Then There Were Two, a History of the World series. I'm Jeffrey Clark, being joined virtually by Lucas Mitzel, as always. And Lucas, if it wasn't for one of these games out of the Spoiler Alert 7 that we are going to talk about, this would just be another run-of-the-mill seven-game World Series. But one of them vaults this series into legend, wait for it, dairy status. Especially given one of the teams that is involved in this series and all of the history that goes into it and just all of that kind of compounds everything into making this series in particular, but especially that one game, as you alluded to, that legendary status. Well, let's start with that team in question. As you probably know, the Boston Red Sox sold Babe Ruth to the Yankees, and since then, they've only appeared in three World Series, 1946, 1967, and 1975, and they have lost all of them, coincidentally, in seven games. In 1946, you had Enos Slaughter's dash that cost the Red Sox, and of course there is debate as to whether the ball was held on too long during the play in question. You had a tight series with the Cardinals in 1967. You had the epic series in 1975 with Carlton Fisk's big walk-off home run in Game 6, only for them to lose to the big red machine in Cincinnati. And now we have this year. The Red Sox have a very nice lineup highlighted by Wade Boggs, who led the American League with a 357 batting average. Dwight Evans hit 26 home runs, had 97 RBIs. Jim Rice had a 324 average, hit 20 homers, 110 runs driven in. And the man at the center is Cy Young Award winner and MVP Roger Clemens, who won 24 games, also sets the single-game strikeout record with 20 early in the season. So this should have been enough for them to cruise into the World Series, but they had to deal with a tough ALCS against the Angels, in fact, Dave Henderson had to homer off Donnie Moore at the last possible moment to keep that series alive, and then they would go on to win the ALCS. And you have a team that is playing for a fan base that is extremely hungry. It's been 68 years, 1918 in fact, since the Red Sox last won it all. The Curse of the Bambino has been a big thing for Red Sox fans for decades now. And you would have to think that at some point the baseball gods would shine a light on them. And perhaps this is the time. Well, I think especially going back to that um, Game 5, the uh, massive home run by Henderson, that came in that aforementioned Game 5 while the Red Sox were trailing three games to one. So we mentioned the meme being a thing in last week's episode, and it's a thing in the ALCS here this year as the Red Sox able to make the comeback and make their way back to the Fall Classic. Also of note, behind Jim Rice's 110 RBIs on the team is Bill Buckner with 102 RBIs. And I wonder if we're going to talk about him again in this episode. Can't imagine why we would unless... Oh. Oh, no. 
Well, you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself, but let's talk about the team that probably is the favorite anyway. The New York Mets, who were amazing in 1969, were just dominant in 1986. They win 108 games. They win the NL East by 21 and a half games. That is a record since the major split into divisions in the American National Leagues. You have Dwight Doc Gooden going 17 and 6 at 21 years old. Ron Darling went 15 and 6, Bobby Ojeda 18 and 5, Sid Fernandez 16 and 6, and I know that's kind of old school just going off the records, but just trust us, this was a dominant rotation. As far as the offense is concerned, you have Lane Dykstra hitting 295, stealing 31 bags, Wally Backman hit 320, Ray Knight hit 298. Gary Carter hits 24 home runs, drives in 105. Daryl Strawberry hits 27 homers, 93 ribbies for him. Keith Hernandez hits 310, 83 RBIs. And it was still tough for them to get to the World Series as well. They were battling with the Houston Astros, and they needed 16 innings in the clincher, but they are back in the World Series for the third time in their history and their first time since they lost to that A's dynasty in 1973. Yeah, no, I mean, this is a group that you mentioned all those individual numbers. They posted a 311 team ERA on the year. They hit 263 as a team, 148 home runs, uh, 118 stolen bases as a team led by Lenny Dextrous, 31, uh, Strawberry with 28 as a complimentary piece. I mean, yeah, like you said, on paper, this team is favored. And this actually is not the first time that these teams have met this year because on September 4th, these teams play an exhibition game at Fenway Park on Jimmy Fund night. Red Sox fans know the Jimmy Fund is a very important thing connected to the franchise and has been for decades. And of note during this game, the game's first run was scored when a ground ball by Lee Mazzilli went through the legs of Bill Buckner. I wonder if that is a prognosticator, not to mention that during the ALCS, Buckner was quoted as saying, the dreams are you're going to have a great series and win, and the nightmares are that you're going to let the winning run score on a ground ball through your legs. Maybe because he was thinking about that play in the exhibition, or maybe he was predicting something else. I mean, the odds of it happening twice have to be pretty astronomical. There's no way this could happen again, right? Well, we're going to find out. And kind of similar to the 1985 World Series film, which was the Highway Series, this is called the Shuttle Series because of a Pan Am shuttle going between New York and Boston that actually opened in October of 1986 and slight spoiler territory here. Between the change of locations for this series, we get some footage of a Mets fan captain and a Red Sox fan first officer on this particular shuttle. So interesting how back-to-back years, just like last year when we were talking about a highway and a train separating our two World Series cities in Kansas City and St. Louis, we have one particular plane flying back between New York and Boston. Of course, we know Shea Stadium was near LaGuardia Airport. So you could definitely call this a shuttle series, as the World Series film title alludes to. It's a nice touch. I mean, I kind of feel like that there is a little bit of a way of kind of nicknaming all of these series. And so you get a good one here. 
One other note I have before we get into it, we have had for the past decade or so after the American League introduced the designated hitter rule, we had a couple years of pitchers still batting for themselves entirely, and then we were alternating years of one year it's full DH, the following year it's no DH, the pitchers are hitting the entire time. For the first time in World Series history, we have now the rule goes by the home team's ballpark. So in the American League parks, we have the DH. In the National League parks, the pitchers are hitting for themselves. And this is the format that we are going to have for the next few decades. And that, let us get into the actual games in this series, but not before I should mention that when we first get into the Game 1 pregame highlights, we get NFL Films music, which is a relatively common occurrence in these World Series films these days, but I recognized that music when we talk about the Game 1 pregame festivities as being from the first shot of the 1985 Bears championship film. And obviously that was a regularly used piece of music at that time. So it makes sense that, hey, if football can do it, so can baseball. Yeah, I mean, that's the era that we live in and no reason not to keep it going. It works. Also of note, Tom Seaver is on this Red Sox roster, but he will not play in this series. He had already pitched what turned out to be his final game. He had a knee injury, and the Mets fans at Chase Stadium gave him a warm ovation during the pregame introductions. Obviously, they are still fond of him leading that Miracle Mets team to the title in 1969. I mean, that's the defining kind of memory of Mets fandom, and so of course they're going to you know celebrate an old friend. And after NL President Chubb Feeney, who is retiring, throws out the first pitch, we do get into the action. And through six innings, not a lot to talk about. The game is scoreless. And then the seventh inning, Jim Rice leads off with a walk. He moves to second on a wild pitch. And then we get a ground ball hit by Rich Gedman. And that ball goes through Tim Tuffle's legs at second base. And that allows Rice to score. There may be some more predictions in play here. In the ninth, Strawberry leads off with a walk. He is forced out second on a night bunt. And then Calvin Chiroli induces a back and fly out. And a strikeout by Danny Heap. So the Red Sox draw first blood in this 1986 World Series with a 1-0 win. This was a great pitcher's duel. Bruce Hurst throws eight innings of four-hit ball, strikes out eight Mets. Ron Darling, for his part, does a really good job, only allows the single unearned run over seven innings. He strikes out eight guys. Scoreless relief performances from Calvin Schiraldi of the Red Sox and Roger McDowell of the Mets for their parts. And let's get into game two, before which Billy Joel sings the national anthem, which, why not? Billy Joel is one of the things that epitomizes New York City. Leading off the third inning, we have a walk from Spike Owen, and then Roger Clemens, who is hitting for himself, as all American League pitchers will for the next several decades of the World Series. He reaches a throwing error by Keith Hernandez, and the Red Sox end up scoring three runs on a Boggs RBI double, a Marty Baird RBI single, and a Bill Buckner RBI single. And Dwight Gooden is forced to the showers early in this one. Henderson leads off the fourth of the homer to left center. The Red Sox have 18 hits. Bob Stanley pitches three shutout innings for the save. The Red Sox have a 2-0 lead in the series, taking both games at Shane 9-3 the final here. 
And kind of going back into this, um, after Gooden gave up three runs in the top half of the third, the Mets did get a couple of those back off of Clemens in the bottom half. RBI single by Wally Backman and Keith Hernandez with an RBI ground out that cut it to a one-run game. But the Henderson home run that you mentioned ended up pushing that lead back to two. Uh, Dwight Evans, a two-run shot in the fifth, was more or less what ended up knocking Gooden out of the game. He lasts just five innings, giving up six runs. And for the second straight year, we have the road team taking the first two games of the series. I should have mentioned this at the end of game one, much similar to the 1985 World Series film where each win was marked by an interstate sign. The wins here on the World Series film are marked by an airplane which makes sense given that this is called the Shuttle Series. MLB Productions is going above and beyond here in these last couple of World Series highlight films. It's been a nice touch. So we go to Game 3 at Fenway Park. It starts off normally enough. Lady Dykstra hits a home run to right. Then you have Backman Hernandez following with back-to-back singles. And then Carter drives in Backman with an RBI double. Ray Knight hits a ground ball to third that should have generated at least one out. But the Red Sox infield ends up chasing Hernandez and Carter until both runners are able to get back to third and second respectively. And that loads the bases and Heap makes that hurt by driving in both runners in scoring position with an RBI single. So the Red Sox momentum that they carried over from their two wins in Queens is already gone as the Mets put up a four spot largely because of a play that should have limited the damage at least, but instead it results in twice the damage. This was a two-run inning, and there was one out at the time when Ray Knight came up to bat. Daryl Strawberry had struck out to snap the string of four straight hits to start the game. And like you said, this is one where Hernandez should have been dead to rights between third and home. They get the rundown set up perfectly, but... I don't know if it was a matter of Oil Can Boyd cutting off a throw that he shouldn't have, and that kind of completely threw everything off, and then the Red Sox kind of panicked and went, well, let's go see if we can get Carter between second and third, and then they can't even get him. And I enjoyed our text exchange about this play when we were prepping for this, and you had called it the anti-toot bland. You know, we've talked about toot blands a little bit over the course of the podcast. And for those of you uninitiated, toot bland is an unofficial acronym. Basically, it's a non-force out made on the base paths. It officially stands for thrown out on the base paths like a nincompoop. So I came up with the acronym of like, you know, anti-toot bland is good, but we need one that's a little more you know, needs its own thing here. And so I came up with Arsab Dan. All runners safe on base paths. Defenders are nincompoops. And I have to give Lucas points for creativity. I don't know if they'll ever catch on because it happens so infrequently. But I am happy that you are able to get the creative juices flowing a little bit. The other problem with that, too, is like the toot bland is a lot more of an objective thing because of the whole, you know, it's a non-force out made on the base paths. Something like this is a lot more subjective of... You know it when you see it, but it's hard to really quantify. And it turns out, no matter if that happened or not, those first two runs would have been enough. Because Bob Ojeda, who, by the way, had been traded by the Red Sox to the Mets for Schroeder during the previous offseason, gave up one run and five hits and struck out six over seven innings. 
And then Roger McDowell throws two perfect innings to finish the game. Five of his six outs coming on ground balls. The Mets are on the board in this series with a 7-2-1 victory. Their 13 hits are one more than their number of hits in the first two games combined. Yeah, maybe they just needed the uh, change of scenery and going to Fenway to kind of get everything going. Uh, Ojeda, the lone damage that he surrendered in this one was an RBI single to Marty Barrett in the third, but too little too late for the Red Sox. So we go into game four. The Red Sox are sending out a man that has not taken the mound for a while, Al Nipper. In fact, his last start came October 4th. That's two and a half weeks. And initially, the duel between him and Ron Darling is just that. The game is scoreless through three innings. But then Backman singles to lead off the fourth. He moves to second on Hernandez ground out. He scores on Carter's two-run homer over the green monster. Strawberry follows that with a double. He promptly scores on a night RBI single. And then with two outs in the sixth, Gedman singles off of the green monster. But he is thrown out. A nice play by Mookie Wilson trying to stretch that hit into a double. Nipper is relieved in the seventh inning by Steve Crawford. And Wilson singles with one out, still second with two outs. They scores out two and homer by Dykstra that Evans deflects into the right field bullpen. For good measure, Carter hits a solo home run over the Green Monster with one out in the eighth. Darling ends up throwing seven shutout innings despite six walks and four hits, so living dangerously, he's still able to have no damage. Jesse Orozco retires the final four bears for the save. We're not up in the series after the Mets have a 6-2 victory. Yeah, the Mets jumping out to that 6-0 lead. Roger McDowell comes on to start the bottom of the 8th for the Mets, and he ends up only getting a couple of outs and gives up a couple of runs. Uh, Jim Rice led off with a double, and after a Don Baylor lineout, Dwight Evans singled Rice home. A Rich Gedman single moved Evans all the way to third. And then Dave Henderson hit a sack fly to make it 6-2. to two. And then after McDowell walked Mike Greenwell, that brought on Orozco. And then he gets the ground out to get out of the jam. And then induces ground out, ground out, strikeout in the bottom of the ninth. And just like that, we're tied two games apiece. We go to game five. We are now in a best of three. Dwight Gooden gets the start for the Mets on three days rest. And he gets lit up once again. Henderson triples with one out in the second. He promptly scores on a sack fly by Owen. And then you have Buckner reaching on an error by Rafael Santana with one out in the third. He later scores on a single by Evans. And then Rice triples to lead off the fifth. He promptly scores on an RBI single by Baylor. And then Evans singles. And that is it for Dwight Gooden. Four runs scored him in the first five innings. As Carter would later write, I'll never forget the look on his young face as Davey Johnson came out to lift him. It was a sad, bewildered look as though he were thinking, I can't believe this is happening. Henderson ends up scoring an RBI double. The Red Sox salvage a win in Boston. A 4-2 victory here. So they go to New York with two chances to end the curse of the Bambino. Yeah, I mean, they have things exactly where they want it, but we have to remember here, too, only once has a team lost the first two games of a series at home and come back to win. Now, the caveat is that first time was just this past episode, so the Mets have recent history on their side, but they have some work cut out for them. And to make matters worse for the Mets, they have to face Roger Clemens in Game 6. Clemens did not have his best stuff in game two. He only lasted four and a third innings, giving up five hits and three earned runs, walking four, striking out three. 
But Clemens will get some early support here in Game 6. Boggs leads it off with a single off of Knight's Glove for his sixth hit of the series. He later scores on Evans' RBI double. And in between, with Buckner at the plate, there's a man named Michael Sergio who parachutes into Shea Stadium with a Go Mets banner and is subsequently arrested. And some might say that it's an omen of things to come. How about you? I mean, I certainly think so, especially given the batter at the time. And it's just, why do we keep bringing up Bill Buckner? There's no way anything can happen here, right? Well, we have a long way to go in this game, so everybody sit tight. Owen singles with one out in the second. He moves to third on a hit-and-run single by Boggs and then scores on a Barrett RBI single. Barrett's having a heck of a series. Strawberry walks to lead off the fifth. He steals second, and then he scores an RBI single by Knight with two strikes. And then Wilson singles, and Knight scores when the Red Sox trade a run for two outs on a double play that Heap hits into. Then the seventh inning, Barrett walks to lead off. He reaches second on a Buckner ground out. He reaches third when Rice reaches on an Aaron's throw from Knight at third. And then he scores when Rice takes off on a pitch to Evans and reaches second safely to avoid a double play. Gedman singles through a hole on the left side, but Wilson throws out Rice to the plate to end the inning. So Wilson twice in this series has gunned down runners in key positions. I mean, everybody talks about the speed that Mookie Wilson had, but he has a really good arm as well. And as the Red Sox are finding out, you can't run on Mookie Wilson because he will make you pay. And that one was a bang-bang play, but I think it was certainly close enough. You know, no major arguments ensued. Nothing like what we just had in 1985 with the Cardinals and the Royals. So, you know, no real argument here. But maybe the Red Sox could have used that extra run. Well, we'll find out. And Roger Clemens probably could have used an extra inning of work. Through seven innings, he struck out eight and walked two and only given up an earned run. And his spot is due up in the eighth inning. Instead, John McNamara decides to go for a pinch hitter. Clemens, we should note, has developed a blister. And what happens here is up for debate because McNamara and Clemens, over the years, were engaged in a he said, he said. McNamara would say that Clemens was asked to be taken out of the game. Clemens has denied it. We don't know exactly what happened because we have conflicting accounts, but considering what's coming, this debate would become a lot bigger than it otherwise would have been. And I think the other thing that you could make an argument about potentially here is McNamara opted to pinch hit for Clemens with Mike Greenwell. Don Baylor was still on his bench at this particular point in time. I guess McNamara felt that the Greenwell matchup was a little more favorable than Baylor, but whatever the case, Greenwell strikes out on three pitches and the Red Sox do nothing in the top half of the eighth and in comes Calvin Chiraldi for the bottom half. I should note that at this point, Greenwell has only played in 48 regular season games. In fact, he will not exceed his rookie limits until 1987. So you have a guy who is about as inexperienced as he can be coming up in a pinch hit spot in a close World Series game. This would be one of many things that people would question McNamara for reasons that we are getting very close to unveiling. We're almost there. Sit tight. We're getting there. So Chiraldi, like Lucas said, comes in to relieve Clemens in the eighth inning. And Mazzilli, who is pinch hitting for Roscoe, singles to lead off. He reaches second on a failed fielder's choice that Chiraldi does not throw accurately to second on a Dykstra bunt. He reaches third when Backman has a sack bunt. 
you have Hernandez intentionally walked, and then Carter hits a sack fly to score Mazzilli. We have a 3-3 three three tie, and nobody scores in the ninth inning. So we go to extras, and the Red Sox quickly make it known that they want this championship drought to end. Henderson leads it off with a home run to left, and if that's not enough, Boggs doubles with two outs. He promptly scores on a Barrett single. And the Red Sox have a 5-3 to three lead. So at this point, down the Red Sox clubhouse, Bob Costas is down there for NBC because it's his job to interview the winning team. And the only team that can hoist the trophy that night is the Red Sox. So you don't really see anything out of the ordinary down there for such a situation. You've got the trophy being rolled in. you got the plastic covering the lockers. The cameras and cables are being set up there. And in the bottom of the 10th, it starts with Backman and Hernandez flying out back-to-back. And here is where a lot of crazy things happen. Let me break down several of them. First of all, third-base umpire Harry Wendelstead asks Wade Box to give him his cap because he always collected the caps from the third baseman of winning teams. But Box said, Harry, it's not over yet. The Mets are angry when they see on the video board that Clements had shaven his game beard in preparation for the post-game celebratory interviews. And you have Bruce Hurst already being voted as World Series MVP because he's had a couple of good starts in this series. And we'll get more into that later on. And ever so briefly, probably the biggest omen of all, the Shea Stadium scoreboard flashes, congratulations Boston Red Sox 1986 world champion. So... A lot is going on, and we still have one out to go. Pretty much everything that you just mentioned is all understandable preparation for all of these things that are taking place. You know, we've talked in past episodes about the whole voting thing and wanting to have all of that ready to go. Obviously, all of the pre-production work for TV that needs to go into having all of that prepped and ready to go, the champagne and what have you. So a lot of this is understandable. The brief scoreboard, congratulations to the World Series champion Red Sox. Less so, but I mean, that's something you also have to have ready beforehand too. But it's almost in the realm of 1980 Royals fans wearing the t-shirts. But even then, the two-out single by Gary Carter on a line drive to left field isn't really that much of a cause for concern yet. No, because after Hernandez makes the second out, after which, by the way, he goes into the clubhouse and drinks a bottle, assuming the series is over, the Red Sox, according to Baseball Reference, have a 99% win expectancy. And after that Carter single, it's still at 96%, so barely a blip on the radar. And then you have Kevin Mitchell pinch hitting for Rick Aguilera, and he had already changed into his street clothes, but he had to go back and change into his uniform to pinch hit, and he singles into center field. At that point, it's still a relatively done deal for the Red Sox because their win expectancy is still 92%, according to baseball reference. And then you have Ray Knight coming up with a line drive single to right center field. Carter scores, and all of a sudden, it's 5-4. to four. Now the win expectancy drops to 81% on baseball reference. So in a very short period of time, you've got win expectancy dropping by 18%. And we don't know if McNamara's doing a panic move right here, but he decides to take Chiraldi out of the game, bringing Bob Stanley. 
And some people are thinking that this might not be a winning move. You know, maybe he is tempting fate here. And at this point, people are starting to think, hey, maybe there is a different outcome in the cards after all. And in the documentary Catching Hell about Steve Bartman, they devote a large portion of it to this 1986 World Series. Bob Costas was interviewed for this documentary and he says he asked NBC Sports executive producer Mike Weissman his earpiece what to do if the Mets tie the game. And Weissman told him in no uncertain terms, get your ass out of there as fast as you possibly can. And meanwhile, you have Bud Harrelson, the Mets third base coach, telling Mitchell to prepare for a ball in the dirt. So, a lot of anticipation going on right here. People are starting to think, hey, the Mets might actually come back and at least tie the game. We don't know if they'll win the game, but this game might last another inning yet. Yeah, it's entirely possible. And then, sure enough, Bob Stanley puts one in the dirt. Yes, he does put one in the dirt. In fact, it is a wild pitch. And it's possibly because Stanley and Gedman get their signals crossed. In fact, that's what they would say what happened. They got crossed on the type of pitch and the direction of the pitch. Mitchell comes in to score the tying run. And just like clockwork, the trophy champagne plastic are taken out of the clubhouse. As Vince Scully says on the World Series film, the Sox had just seen their lead and their championship slip away, but now they're about to watch the unwatchable. So Mookie Wilson hits a ground ball, say it with me, little rower up along first, behind the, the back, it gets, it gets through, through Buckner. Buckner, here comes Knight and the Mets win it. I mean, it's, it's words that you're just, you're so familiar with having heard them and it's just they're iconic in a way and absolutely haunting if you're from the city of Boston and just to have that happen. And, you know, we mentioned the ball going through Buckner's legs in that exhibition game. Like, what are the odds of that happening twice to the same guy? Like, it's just the baseball gods have a sick sense of humor sometimes. And I do have to bring this up, and I'm wondering if my YouTube algorithm got messed up by me searching for the 1986 World Series film here. But they had mentioned this, and I had seen the picture of this well in advance, but kind of the eerie thing about all of this is under Bill Buckner's fielding glove, he'll wear like a batting glove, but the batting glove that he's wearing is his from when he was with the Cubs. So you see him walking off the field and he's got Cubs gear in addition to the Red Sox thing. So you have, in addition to the Curse of the Bambino, you've got potentially Cubs juju mixed in there too. Also noteworthy that Leon Durham had a similar flub in the 1984 NLCS in a crucial game. Uh, here is the call by Mets broadcaster Bob Murphy. A ground ball trickling is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Rounding third nights. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. He would say the Mets have won what must be the most amazing game in their 25-year history. I can't imagine a more remarkable victory. And here's another doubting John McNamara strategy because almost as soon as Murphy makes that call, his second command, Gary Thorne, asks on the air, what is Bill Buckner doing in the game at this point anyway? Because seven times during those playoffs, during the late innings, 
Buckner would be replaced in the field by Dave Stapleton because Buckner was a great hitter, but he was hurt everywhere. He had arthritis ankle, he had an injured Achilles tendon, he had to soak his feet just to be able to play. And in fact, Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post had a column that had just run that morning's paper. It hurts to watch Buckner was the title of that, questioning whether Buckner should play. And McNamara, perhaps giving in to sentimental reasoning, keeps Buckner out there because he wants him to be in the picture because he's a borderline Hall of Fame player. He's a former bag champion. And for whatever reason, Buckner is still out there. And maybe Wilson would have been to the bag anyway. Personally, I think he would have done because Buckner was playing pretty far off of this bag. And some people say, you know, Bob Stanley should have covered first base. But even if he had, I'm not sure that Wilson would have been out because Wilson was just running so fast and the ball was such a slow roller that I'm convinced that it would have been a bang-bang play whether either Buckner had raced to the bag or if Stanley had covered. Wilson was just fast and athletic. So at the very least, I think you would have had Knight stranded on third base for the time being. And then you have another opportunity for the Mets to end the ball game right there. But it's one of the reasons, potentially, that you can't blame Buckner for what happened here. Because McNamara was making one questionable decision after another. I mean, sure, Buckner went over 5 in the game. And you could say that he was partially to blame for the Red Sox even being put in that position. But the Red Sox also left 14 runners on base that night. So if they just have a couple of more base hits or they have smart base running, you know, we talked about the play at the plate in the seventh inning. We might not even be talking about this at all. Or at the very least, it's just a footnote, but alas. There's so much to unpack with that, kind of going back to your point about uh, the defensive replacement of Buckner with Stapleton. Since Buckner joined the Red Sox in 1984 and the last two full seasons at first base, Stapleton had committed one error at first base during that entire time. So I understand why the decision was made. So maybe it was the sentimentality angle you mentioned. I don't know. Regardless, you have that play but other things that could have potentially avoided it, you know, the throw out at home plate, the poor hitting with runners in scoring position, the leaving so many guys on base, whatever the case, for the second straight year, we have a miraculous home team rally with their backs against the wall in a game six with a walk-off win that forces a winner-take-all game seven. Which might not have happened if Buckner hadn't been playing with a very loose glove. Because in that same documentary, Catching Hell, he pointed out that he likes to play the very loose glove. And when he put his glove down, his momentum is moving to the left. Made the right side of his glove automatically close. So the ball went to the right of his glove instead of underneath. And he didn't realize that until years later. And he said that he felt lousy about it, and understandably so. But Dave Henderson also said, The players don't have a goat or one thing that everyone talks about. We just look at a lot of times at a ball game where we should have done better. A lot of things happened before Bill Buckner missed the ground ball. And after he missed the ground ball, all the cameras and cables are taken out of the Red Sox clubhouse. And as Costas would say on that same Catching Hell documentary, he heard someone crash a bat against the wall, break it in half, and shout a lone F-bomb. And that was the only word they heard. 
And I think that spoke for all of Red Sox Nation. And probably my favorite quotes to come out of that night was in a Red Sox HBO documentary. I forget what the title is right now. But a man went out for a walk and this old timer told him, Son, this is the darkest day in Boston since Jack Kennedy was shot. Nice touch with the um, accent there as well. I love it. So somehow, some way, the Mets have forced a seventh game and it was delayed one day by rain, so Buckner had additional day to stew, and people were still blaming him for everything back in Beantown. And to the Mets fans' credits, they did give Buckner a standing ovation when the players were introduced before the seventh game, which features Hurst pitching on three days rest, Darling, who had not given up an earned run in the series to this point on five days rest, you have Gene Yawkey and Nelson Doubleday Jr., the respective owners, throwing out to the first pitch. And the World Series film also makes notes of some of the celebrities in the stands. The one shot that stands out to me immediately is the one with Bill Murray and Ahmad Rashad. Yeah, I saw Bill Murray there and I almost did a double take. I was like, it threw me for a loop almost. But it's nice to see Bill Murray at a World Series game, something that we will see again in the future in an episode that I'm really looking forward to. The rain that occurred in New York ended up pushing this game back a day. You mentioned the three days rest for Hurst. He wouldn't have been able to pitch this game or at least start without that rain. And so at least initially, this seems like it's benefiting the Red Sox a little bit. So Evans and Gedman lead off the second with back-to-back -back homers, the latter of which went off of Strawberry's glove at the right center field wall. So we're getting a lot of home runs going off of gloves over the outfield wall in this series. Henderson promptly walks. He later scores on an RBI single by Boggs. Darling's night is done with two outs in the fourth, and Fernandez comes in, does a nice job in relief, strikes out four over two in the third innings. And then Mazzilli pinching for Fernandez with one out in the sixth, singles. Then Wilson singles right after, and then after Tuffle walks, both score on a Hernandez RBI single. Then Backman pinch running for Tuffle, scores the tying run after Evans can't handle a Carter pop-up in shallow right. And Chirality relieves Hurst to begin the seventh. And Knight immediately makes him pay, serves up a leadoff home run. He hits it to left center. The Mets score twice more in the inning. Buckner and Rice hit back-to-back -back singles to lead off the eighth. Both of them score promptly on Evans' double. So McDowell comes out of the game. Roscoe comes in. He retires the next three batters. And then Strawberry leads off the eighth with a home run to right. Knight promptly singles and later scores on a single by Orozco, hitting pitches forever, Lucas. And then Bill Buckner is on deck with two outs in the ninth inning. And the Mets are ahead 8-5, to five, so the chances of the Red Sox coming back and winning are pretty slim. And sure enough, Marty Barrett strikes out. The game is over. The series is over. Jesse Orozco flings his glove in the air. I'm pretty sure that glove has not come down yet. It's one of my favorite World Series celebrations of all time. The Mets are your World Series champions for the second time in their history in the season that they probably should have won anyway, given that they won so many games during the regular season. But given what happened the previous game, it feels improbable all the same. Yeah, and a crazy night for sports in New York and the Meadowlands area. So this game was played on a Monday night. Monday Night Football, the Giants were hosting Washington that night. Kickoff for that game happened about 30 minutes after the start of this Game 7. And so you have fans there following along and 
just a collective roar from New York fans when the stadium scoreboard operator flashes Mets win on the board to inform the fans of the result. So Ray Knight is your World Series MVP, probably wrapped it up with that leadoff home run in the seventh inning of Game 7. And you you take a look at his numbers, it's not really that big of a surprise. He had a 391 average, an on-base percentage of 440, a swing percentage of 565, that's an OPS of 1,005, had five RBIs. Gary Carter had nine RBIs, but his OPS was a little lower, and so was everything else. I think the slash line is what puts Ray Knight over the top here. A lot of people say that maybe Ray Knight is the hero because he scored that winning run in Game 6. And by the way, I've always wanted to know whose hand that was that was shown up on the NBC shots right when he was about to score. And I know that he would be happy no matter who was in the shot because... Let's face it, he scored the winning run in Game 6, had the game-winning hit in Game 7. So, a couple of good games for one Mr. Ray Knight. Teams back against the wall, he showed up, and we looked at the numbers. Those kind of speak for themselves just on the surface. You had the context. And this feels like a no-brainer pick, really, especially, too, you look at Mets pitching. Nobody really jumps out too much at you. I mean, Bob Ojeda with a uh, 1-0 record, a 208 ERA Jesse Orozco in four games, posts an ERA of zero, records two saves, including the save in game seven. Ron Darling goes one and one with a 153 ERA. I mean, solid numbers, but yeah, the award is Ray Knights. And the Red Sox had a couple of key contributors. We mentioned how Bruce Hurst was going to be named World Series MVP in the event of a Red Sox victory, and he definitely would have earned it. Again, had the Red Sox won Game 7. He won two of his three starts, had no decision in Game 7, had a 1.96 ERA over 23 innings, struck out 17 a very nice series for him. You also could have given ours had the Red Sox won to Marty Barrett. He had a 433, 514, 500 slash line, a 1.014 OPS, and he had four RBIs. Although Dwight Evans had nine RBIs, so maybe you could have given it to him. He had a 1.015 OPS, a 1.208 OPS for Dave Henderson, who has slash line of 400, 448, 760. So you have a few guys that could have won it for the Red Sox, but none of it matters because Buckner's play is what stands out. And even though Buckner had a very nice career, Played 22 years in the big leagues, 2,715 hits, had a lifetime batting average of 289, played over 307 times his career, his high coming with the Cubs in 1980, hitting 324, gave him the NL batting title. And he successfully fielded 15,252 balls at first base over his career. But none of that matters because. It's all remembered for one thing. Pulling a Buckner becomes a sort of slang. Making an egregious mistake is the definition of that. And people would just not let him hear the end of it. One such example, in 1993, Buckner was asked to sign a ball at a park in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. An onlooker shouted, don't give him the ball, he'll just drop it. And Buckner got so mad that he allegedly pushed the onlooker up against the wall. And he said, at least once a week, I hear something about it. It got so bad for Buckner that he sold his home in Boston, moved his family to Idaho. There was a band out of Boston named Slide that titled their 1996 album, Forgiving Buckner. 
but it took them a long time to do that for reasons that we'll get into much later. But Buckner eventually did come back to the Red Sox in retirement. I'm glad that before he passed away in 2019, that was able to happen. And probably my favorite thing in 2011, episode of Curvy Enthusiasm had him guest starring. And without giving away too much, he made a very heroic catch at the end of it. And you could say that was redemption for him. So credit to Larry David for doing that for him. And it's just too bad that he suffered for such a long time, but I'm glad he was able to make peace with everything, I think, before he left us. And so I can live with it. So that is it for 1986. A very eventful one at that. As Vince Scully said after that Buckner error, if one picture is worth a thousand words, you've seen a million words. We've probably crossed over a million words talking about this 1986 World Series. And for obvious reasons, we were really looking forward to this. That's too bad that it had to happen at the expense of one man. But despite everything that's happened since, stay tuned and keep listening to this podcast for that. It is still a part of baseball history. And we just have to look at it for what it is, because that's the purpose of this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's been a lot of kind of unfortunate things. You know, the Red Sox have their long history up to this point, and this the latest, most unfortunate chapter to that. The dawn is coming, Boston. Don't tune out yet. Stay tuned, because we have another great series on deck. We do. In 1987, we have a recent World Series participant that also got the short end of the stick. And we will have that new entrance to the World Series, but it's been a long time. And let's just say, at least I suspect, there might be some very unfair home field advantage in play. And I am not bitter about this home field advantage whatsoever for any reason. Oh, good. We get to talk about your favorite building. Tune in next week to find out what that is. Yes. So for Lucas Mitzel, I'm Jeffrey Clark. Thanks for listening to our lengthy 1986 episode, Then There Were Two, A History of the World Series. Like us on Facebook, follow us on what's still Twitter for us, and subscribe to us. We will see you next time. 